maybe I will say what I, okay. I'm just going to say what I was going to say. I do feel like there is, yeah, this kind of like posthumous preciousness, like, the, like worship the, the, the body of work by Chantal, her as a figure. Um, but it's interesting to me because, you know, watching family business, it actually seems so much to me about how, like, she also didn't have money as a filmmaker. And I just feel like there's this part of me, I think that I felt, especially after she passed away, where I was just like, where where was all this love and support in her lifetime? Yeah. And like, you know, why didn't it translate into like, you know, I mean, obviously she made a lot of films and, you know, had like a thriving creative career. Um, but um, I don't know. It's also not to underestimate like the struggle that still someone like Shanta Ackerman experienced trying to like get her work made. So anyway, it's my cranky, crabby intro. <laughs> no, no, I it's like not... that. On pas la radio aujourd'hui. See. Welcome back. It's month four of the Ackerman year. I'm Simon Howell. Kate Rennebaum, also here. Hello, Kate. Hello. Month four. That sounds so, like, official. I don't know. It sounds like things are happening. We're making progress. I know. We're actually, we're, we've, we've, like, we've, we've hunked out, like, an actual real fraction of the job. And here to help us continue to hunk out that fraction, it's Jessica Bardsley. Hi, hello, welcome, or what, what, what do I say? <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me back on your podcast. Yes. Uh, See, I told you, my brain really isn't on. <laughs> well, it's lucky we're not talking about anything of substance today. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we're, we're here to talk two features and one short today um uh, i think kate is it safe to say this is like i mean i know that i started off the last episode with like wow such much stylistic breath etc but i think we're we're pushing that even further this month yeah i feel like when i was choosing the films for uh different weeks different months to put together i was a little worried about putting meetings with anna and desk together because it felt like just stacking the deck a little too much like these are kind of for me anyway major pillars in Ackerman's career and I was a little worried that yeah we might be stealing from other months but I don't know it just worked out well to put them together and I think at the time it felt like a bit of a lark the idea of like oh displacements because on the surface I think you can look at Dust and Meetings with Anna particularly and think they're very different films and they are very different films in a certain kind of sense but then as soon as you watch them with this idea in mind they actually overlap a lot and in really interesting ways so um I guess that worked out and I'm happy to do that. But yes, we have a lot of heavy, deep stuff to talk about. So like Jessica, I'm also hoping that my brain <laughs> kicks into gear and I wake up. It's a Friday night. <laughs> it's been a long week. We're all a little tired, but that's okay. Ackerman's going to jazz us right up. Yeah. Also, I feel like we didn't say who Jessica is. Jessica, do you want to say who you are? Like, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, now I'm worried to say anything. Um, <laughs> it's all going to come out backwards. 
so well, the I... first thing we know is you're the host of the Ackerman Year. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome everyone to my podcast, the Ackerman Year. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm a filmmaker and a scholar, and um, I just started teaching at Cornell. Um, so now I'm based in Ithaca, and. I don't know. I was excited to have Jessica on because I know, Jessica, your work kind of overlaps a little bit with questions of sort of like autobiography and female yeah. like figures. And I don't know. I just thought there would be some yeah. interesting stuff here for sure. Yeah. And I think that's also my interest in Ackerman's work. And and actually, like what, what you were saying about putting putting these films together, I... Um, actually, there was something for me that came out of watching these three... Um, otherwise like kind of different movie, pretty different movies. Um, and it's kind of realizing, or at least for me, that whatever the, you know, subject matter or genre, there, there's still this super, uh, formal approach to cinematography. There's often similar kinds of shots and, um, just an approach to what, is being filmed that I feel like carries across these films. And for me, that was actually what was most interesting or illuminating about watching these together. Since we have you already uh, talking about these films, Jessica, I'd like to sort of ask you a variant of what I ask everyone is what's your, what's your relationship like with Ackerman in terms of like, when did you first uh, get exposed to her stuff? And, um, yeah. you know, how are you feeling about the, about her work today? What, what was the films that like hooked you? Was yeah. there a film that hooked you? Yeah, I first discovered her work probably, oh, I want to say like probably, um, actually I know when it was, it was 2008 and I was living in New York City and there was a screening of Jean Dielman at Film Forum and I went and it just totally blew my mind. Um, and I think after that, then I saw News From Home and um, and I think in a way that film really spoke to me in a different way, maybe more as a filmmaker, because I think it was interesting to me to see this, this filmmaker approach um, landscape or cityscape in, in this very personal way. Using this film to kind of think about her relationship with her mother and her relationship to the city and, and the way that it it communicated the sense of being an outsider in this place. And um, yeah, so I, I think that was maybe the first movie that really kind of um, spoke to me in, in that kind of more personal way. I think Jean Dielman like blew my mind in a different way. <laughs> um, and I really knew nothing about it going into it. So um yeah, I, um, I'm actually planning to teach that later this semester, and I'm really excited for students to watch that movie. It's super fun to teach John Dealman. Oh my God, so much fun. Um, I miss it. Uh, but, um, but yeah, for these films, had you, so had you, you had seen meetings with Anna before? Yeah, I had seen meetings with Anna years ago. I mean, I've seen, uh, I hadn't seen the short film Family Business, um, but yeah, so I've I've seen Dust and um, meetings with Anna 
um, if we want to continue to call it that. And <laughs> I, I mean, I can, I, we can, we can call it, this is a question, right? We can call it the rendezvous d'Anna. We can call it meetings with Anna. Simon came across it being called something else and has been railing against it to me for years about this terrible title. No, I've never, just, the, the English title I always see in like everywhere is the meetings of Anna, which is just awful. I've only ever seen it as meetings with Anna, but the meetings of Anna is horrible. Um, so I don't know where that is. It's just literal. I mean, it's also interesting, like, what what would we call it? Yeah. It's, anyway. But I think because maybe I personally, yeah, I guess I'm realizing as we're talking already that I have a more kind of, I do have a, maybe a more filmmaker relationship to her work. And I think it's some of the, the pieces that um, are nonfiction, but you know, border on fiction, um, that maybe I've spent more time with. So I think Dest is a, a film that I would put in that care category, um, especially this idea of bordering on fiction, um, and using one's personal perspective to, um, you know, approach what, you know, another documentary filmmaker might approach in a much more um, impersonal way or have a different kind of logic for organizing what you're seeing. Well, I, I think we're going to work through this chronologically. So I think we'll start with meetings with Anna and then the short, and then we'll we'll dig into dust. And I, I think we're all going to have plenty to say about all of these. But um, yeah, I don't know. So Simon, do you want me to start us off on meetings with Anna? Or do you want to talk about it? I remember it was the film that got you into Ackerman. Yeah, I can say a bit about that. Um... Le Rendezvous d'Anna, as I'm going to insist on calling it, um, is, I think it was the first, act, I mean, I may or may not have seen uh, Jean Dielman in, I feel like I must have seen Jean Dielman in school, but that whole time in my life has mostly fallen into the oubliette, if we're being honest. Um, so uh, Meetings with Anna was the first one I really seriously engaged with as an adult, and knowing that, uh, Kate, you were, a, you were a big fan, and I think it must have been... <sighs> Obviously, you meet all films when you meet them and, you know, who you are as a person and in your life will inform your viewing, blah, blah, blah. But there's I, I might be wrong about this, but I, I feel like that goes double for Ackerman uh, a lot of the time. And um, when I first saw Rendezvous d'Anna circumstantially in my life, I was just correctly positioned for it to just absolutely destroy me. I had a very emotional first viewing. Um and I've seen, I you know, I've seen it a few times since then. And revisiting it this week, I felt like my relationship to it had completely changed. And it was like, it, in a strange way, it made me realize, like, oh, like my life is very different than it was a couple of years ago. And I feel like there's not a lot of filmmakers who can make you have a personal revelation about yourself through uh, merely one film that <laughs> that you know you would think you have personally nothing biographically in common with. Uh, but such is the power of Ackerman. Yeah, I don't know. It's the movie definitely was the film that this was the film that absolutely got me into Ackerman too. Um, I, I mentioned the, this class many times already in the podcast, but uh, this was the film that Jerry White showed in the class that just, yeah, I, I remember the sequence and we'll build up to this, but the sequence at the end where you see Anna crying in the car and I was like, I, this movie is has some kind of like direct line to my soul like I don't know what it is doing but it, it I just was so blown away by the idea of kind of feeling emotion but without having the normal like markers of content or identification that is normally how emotion is given to you in films like I think it just 
yeah, it just melted my brain. Um, and, and we can, we'll build up to that, I think, as we talk about the film. But, um, but yeah, I can give us some sense of what, where Ackerman is when this film comes together, what happens. Um, yeah, and then maybe a bit of an overview of the film yeah. itself. Yeah. It, it's my <laughs> impression from, uh, from the materials that I've read that this film at the time it was a bit of a backlash item to the extent that it was seen. And as ever since then, that's kind of faded, it seems like. Yeah, I, I don't think people now think about it this way. But um, at the time, she was working with a much larger budget than anything she'd worked with before. I think the budget was like 600000 dollars or 600,000 euro. I don't actually know which currency it is, but 600,000, uh, which is a lot compared to the budget that she was working with before. And it definitely did not make that amount of money back. It was a sort of financial flop is my understanding. Um, and yes, she was working with a um, French production company called Gaumont, which at the time, uh, the kind of critics and other filmmakers who were very sort of devoted to Ackerman's project took this to be very much a sense of a kind of like aesthetic compromise that she would work with such a high polish um, production company. This idea being that it inherently would kind of taint the work or that she would be sort of forced to be more mainstream by working with Gaumont. Um, and yeah, Ackerman, there was an interview that Ackerman did with uh, Jean-Luc Godard in 1979 and Godard, I'll probably mention it a couple of times throughout this discussion, but uh, Godard really hammers her on the film in it. He, yeah, he keeps calling, he, he keeps sort of using the word Gaumont just as itself an indicator that the movie must be bad. Like it just is like, oh, it's a Gaumont film. Um, and he sort of continually says things to her like, ah, well, I just really, I just thought the film really wasn't very good. <laughs> I just really... <laughs> I thought the film was really uneven. It was like a Gaumont film. But but I mean, many critics felt this way. Like Holberman, I think, sort of pointed this out. I think just many people were worried that this was her abandoning the avant-garde and moving towards being a mainstream filmmaker. And certainly the film does take some steps in that direction, right? I mean, this is filming on a kind of bigger scale. She has access to more... Um, material and funds when she's working and so she's working with a I don't think Aurore Clement was a, like a major star at this point like she wasn't the equivalent of Delphine Serig but she was uh, she is a an actress I mean she's a presence in the film um working with many other actors uh tra traveling around Europe to film it's just a different kind of project there is and we'll see that this is not entirely the case because as soon as you start to pay close attention to this film you realize just how much she's still doing to undermine all of these things. But there is a sense here that there is a bit more emphasis on narrative and a bit more emphasis on a kind of like, I don't know, not style, because her films always have style, but it's just a different kind of style in this film. And we can sort of talk about that more. Yeah. Can I Can I just say, I, I don't want to turn this into that sort of podcast, but um, Jean-Luc Godard throwing around uneven is a little fucking rich in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no argument here. <laughs> but then we're probably alienating some cinephiles, yeah, so we should be careful, I suppose, I guess. But uh, anyway, that interview is fascinating, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it maybe again, probably throughout the year of the podcast here. But um, yeah, I don't know. Do you want me to, should we describe a little bit what the film is like the kind of overview of the film here um yeah sure yeah let's 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 give people a a, a taste so it, we're it we're what we're, we're so for this section of the podcast we're we're dealing with a relatively you know we're dealing with a linear narrative feature uh with a with arguably a beginning middle and end um which is which i guess is best most easily summarized as i don't know a set of 
converse. I mean, you could call them conversations, really they're monologues for the most part with some minor input from, uh, from our titular character with these sort of like, I don't know, in my, at least in my head, in my memory, it lives as like a, these, a set of monologues and a set of almost ambient interludes or like visits to liminal spaces while we, uh, while we await the next conversation or not. It has, it has a, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not as well-versed in art film of the last 30 years as I am of, of genre film, but um, I, I feel like this is a really, I haven't seen a lot of films that, um, especially of this era, that so seamlessly marry kind of um, experimental flourishes and sort of leg- quote unquote, like legible narrative cinema or whatever, like however you want to put that. Um, I don't know. I th- I think it's it's almost exactly to me halfway pitched between um, between those modes. If you want to look at it from a in a you know on an axis or whatever, um, and I I think that's why it's such a good um, gateway movie for getting into Ackerman because you kind of I don't think there is one good gateway because that will tell you everything she's up to, but I think this is a nice kind of median. Yeah, it's true. I mean, and it's interesting because at the time, just as people were complaining that this was her leaving the avant-garde, the other half of the complaint was that it was too unusual still yeah, for, a, ma- for exactly. a mainstream audience, right? So I think it is an interesting kind of like entry point into her work. Watching it and hearing that that comment, the Godard comment, it just seems, um, I don't know, it, it's a strange world in which this is going mainstream. <laughs> it's, certainly, it's certainly, you know, I don't know what to call it, cleaner, polished, more polished. But I guess for me, it still feels like it has the kind of formal interests um, that I think persist in a lot of her movies, Um, still has this kind of interest in time and duration and um, letting moments unfold. And I don't know, this kind of tension between a certain kind of like narrative looseness and then these very composed shots um looking back at it like i i see i I don't share that (laughs) on this movie (laughs) no i don't either and i mean and i think this is also like ackerman is sort of exploring new things in meetings with anna that she hadn't really taken up to the same extent before and i i'm not sure that this was quite as obvious to everybody right at that moment because of course if you're like because what i'm talking about is the fact that the film is very much engaged in questions of the history of europe and i think if you're writing about the film in 1978, maybe it is not quite as obvious to you that that's what the film is doing. But in retrospect, it is deeply obvious. Um, And and just, again, as a bit of an overview here, the, the film follows this character of Anna Silver, played by Aurore Clement, who, again, Ackerman is very clear in the film to draw autobiographical links between this character of a filmmaker and Ackerman as a sort of presence, um, a filmmaking presence. And there's many different links here. Anna... The first name of the character is Chantal Ackerman's middle name, and was she was called Anna as she was growing up a lot. So there's that. Um, there's the fact that she has Polish Jewish parents, um, and there's we'll get to the discussion of the mother because clearly again Nellie or Natalia is being referenced with the mother figure here, and um, again question of sexuality, queerness is present here, and then also and we'll talk about this I'm sure at length, but is the idea of like nomadism or the kind of like alien quality of Anna, the fact that she 
that the whole film follows her moving from place to place without her ever having a kind of relationship of home to anything. She's never in a space that feels like home. None of the spaces that she's in even feel particularly lived in or particularized. Everything is a kind of in-transit space. And in the interviews that Ackerman gave about the film, she really emphasizes this idea that for her, the character of Anna is someone who, who doesn't have a relationship of power over the people that she meets or a relationship of possessiveness with the spaces that she's in. And there's this idea that she maybe kind of, I think Ackerman has talked about this, that she sort of heralds the possibility of another way of living that might be a kind of future way of living or a, an alien way of living. Um, and I think Aurora Clement's performance, like she's not wearing any makeup. She has this kind of like very drawn face. She's beautiful, obviously, but she has this very sort of drawn face and she moves a little weirdly is all meant to sort of draw this out. Um, so we have that idea, this question about Anna as a character which we can dig into, but then the ideas about European history become really present in the monologue. So there's five monologues. She meets up with five different people. The first one is a German man who comes to see her film uh, one night, and I guess they hit it off. You don't actually really see them meeting. She takes, she allows him to come back to her hotel room, but then she calls off the romantic engagement, but she agrees to go to his daughter's birthday party the next day. And you see him give this very long monologue to her about the kind of like history of German um, different periods in Germany's history. And that is a fascinating monologue. We can talk about that more. And then uh, she meets up with Ida, her mother's friend, who is another older Jewish woman who has just moved back to Germany, who used to live in Brussels. Uh, and Ida talks to Anna a lot about how Anna was engaged twice to her son, but broke it off twice, which is a subtle reference to Kafka, who broke off his relationship twice too to the same woman. Um, and again, there's more to that, the idea of a kind of like, Anna resisting forms of life that are the kind of quote normal or like the gendered forms of life that everyone wants her to do. Um, and then she meets with a man on the train, Daniel, who is a, I'm sorry, uh, not Daniel, a man on the train who is an immigrant to Paris. I think he's from Germany. Very idealistic. He has this French, France is freedom. He wants to live in France. He's very idealizing of the country. Uh, and then I think the last one, right, is his um, is Anna's uh, lover, this guy Daniel, that she spends time with in a hotel at the end. And the other absent figure here is this woman. Oh, sorry, her mother. I'm missing her mother. She's in between. Yeah. <laughs> in between. She meets with her mother in between, and then she uh, meets with Daniel. And the absent other figure is this Italian woman who she describes to her mother that she had a, a romantic affair with in Italy and they've been trying to be in touch since. And they've talked a little bit, but Anna keeps missing her calls or keeps being unable to call her throughout the film. That's like one of the motifs. Um, yeah. But I don't know. Do people have thoughts about how this sort of like, did it strike you guys that this film is about a kind of question of like European history or the relation between the personal and historical here, or the personal and the political? Like, what do you think? Jessica, you want to go? Sure. Um, Yes. <laughs> well, I, I think especially this kind of idea of thinking of Anna as kind of an stand-in maybe for Ackerman. And and I think it, it's a really good point. You know, um, I, I think, you know, I've only seen, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure to what extent it's okay to bring in other movies, but sure, I, sure, go for it. Um, I think that, you know, Ackerman's last movie, No Home Movie, just continues to haunt me. Um, and this kind of specter of um, her mother and the Holocaust and um, and that really these, and also that, you know, she was part of this generation of Jewish filmmakers who um, were 
you know, the children of Holocaust survivors who um, had to kind of deal with that baggage. Um, and I guess that is something that I think about now when I rewatch Ackerman's movies is this kind of um, weight that is like, now I see it everywhere. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, it's interesting though, to, to sort of um, like how you're saying this, this sort of this film and kind of thinking about this film as, uh, as Ackerman beginning to try to grapple with or think about European history or her relationship to it. Cause I think that's it too. It's like, we're, we're accessing it through this very subjective lens and, you know, this kind of series of encounters and um, it's not a kind of um, official historical record. It's, it's this more kind of um, it, it's still personal. It's still these intimate encounters or kind of, um, filtered through these particular subjects, I guess. In that first monologue from the um, the fellow who meets her at the screening and then they go to, to his daughter's birthday, the juxtaposition of he goes on this long monologue on German history and talking about what happened uh, post-war, things were carved up and rebuilt. Um, and I think to me... Anna in these scenes, Aurore um, Clément's character, um, the way I, it's, I mean, it's very similar to what you were saying, Kate, but m like my feeling is in these scenes, she's so determined to just kind of be a spectator and to like not really, um, to just, I, I, I don't know, leave, hold space or whatever, as people would say today for, um, for these people to, to talk. And it's almost like a portal opens up and these people just they take their opportunity and they just they they they're like oh i have i have a space here to talk and they take advantage and they i mean not in a bad way they just you know it's like they've they've suddenly they suddenly have a platform and the way that this man talks about german history and then also segues into his personal history which is you know very sad um is uh it's both kind of absurd and almost funny at times just how it's almost like he he becomes like a like a museum tour guide of his own life, or of German or of German history too. I mean, he gives a very generic overview of of German yes. history. Yeah, yeah, and um, and yeah, there's something like tragicomic in there almost. Um, there isn't a lot of uh, comedy in the rest of the movie, but there is something about his kind of stilted affect that uh, that I find funny. Yeah, I mean, I, the German the German monologue is fascinating, and like it sets the film up on this really interesting kind of ledge that it then explores throughout the rest of it. But as you listen to him speak, and to be honest, I only put this together this time researching the film. I've seen this movie many times, and I had somehow never put this together. Is the fact that I, the point from which they are speaking is nineteen seventy in Germany, which is right after 1977 in Germany, which is the Red Autumn in Germany, which is the height of the kind of um, quote unquote terrorist crisis when the Red Army faction kidnapped many people, killed different people. Um, yeah, there was and there was more than one train uh, plane hijacking. It, you can look it up. It's a fascinating moment in history. And the idea is, is that it sort of revolves around the fact of these uh, very extreme left wing groups 
proclaiming that Germany had never reckoned with the legacies of the Second World War and the Holocaust, especially. The, and this is the idea that um, despite the fact that there were the Nuremberg trials um, and some people were tried, the vast majority of high ranking Nazis were then given like jobs in German corporations after the war, that there really wasn't, that, that Germany made a decision, like the government made a decision that there would be this kind of amnesia. Like I, there's a term for it. I'm forgetting it's like year zero or point zero or something that there would be this actual sort of historical amnesia. We were going to just sort of not look at the past. We were going to forgive and forget and move on because that's what needed to happen for Germany's like economic recovery, um, which I don't know, maybe in the moment is justifiable, but then 20, Five years later, there were many younger people that were increasingly incensed and horrified by this. And so this is, is what Hans, oh, sorry, this is what Heinrich, the character, is speaking about when he says, My friend, who was my friend, was accused of something and had to leave the country. And this is what he's talking about, that he would have been accused in the kind of like slightly very kind of uh, extreme responses from the government in that moment. There was a lot of um, cracking down on students and uh, various people. Anyway. So this is the moment from which the film is speaking. And I think this idea that he gives this very generic overview of German history, where he's sort of talking about an idealized German past. He does not mention the Holocaust. Um, he talks about the kind of idea of what are they doing to my country? They being some sort of impersonal government figures that are changing things now, but the Germany before was good. And this is the sort of idea that runs throughout the film is that the characters she meets all seem to be kind of grappling with changes that are happening in the current moment and their like value systems and their forms of life no longer can can hold them in the way that they have before and like this is the sort of idea of kind of history pushing in on the film right and it pushes in in these interpersonal interactions with anna and her um the various people she's she's seeing but i don't know to me this is a kind of fascinating idea that this film is about the sort of the reckoning of a post-war period, the death of ways of thinking from that moment. And um, yeah, the idea that this would play out too with her relationship with her mother, again, with the kind of lingering history of the Holocaust, the character of Ida that um, Ackerman, that Anna meets next. Uh, Ida, of course, says, you must forget the past. So you have these two very different um, reactions to the past. Uh, but anyway, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there, but. I'm glad that Kate, you, you cleared up the line revisiting that scene when he gets to the line about, yeah, my friend did something. I, I, I've, I've, I've never quite, I, I never connected those dots before. And I, and I'm willing to bet that many people watching the film haven't either. So hopefully we've all learned something today. <laughs> um, indeed. I mean, I mean, maybe I can just ask you guys as well, like, wh what is your sense of Anna as a character? Like, how do you find the film kind of presenting her? How do you find your own relationship as a spectator with her? Because for me, this is often, this has historically been my interest with this film. And I think my thinking about it's changed a little bit. But um, yeah, I don't know. Because like, I, just as a thing I was going to respond to with Simon's point there, the idea of the the characters taking their space and giving their monologues with, with uh, her listening as this sort of passive figure. I mean, either there's a kind of question there is again like how much should we treat these other people as characters too just because they're speaking whereas Anna's speech is maybe less forthcoming these are not really normal characters in the kind of normal mm. illusionistic sense of the, th of the word right so yeah personally like I never really considered what it would mean for the character if these if these other people aren't to be thought of as necessarily full characters what I what I would say is like I don't know I, I I've definitely been in a lot of positions in life where uh, I'm one of those people that people talk to 
It's not just my, I'm not just saying that. I just, I often find myself in a position where people are just telling me stuff. Simon, they... to be fair, you do chase a lot of us down and ask you to do, ask us to do podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I don't know. I keep opening this window and there's always people around. It's really weird. Uh, <laughs> but no, and, and I've certainly been in a lot of like strange spaces, listening to people drone on on strange, like extremely personal and emotional subjects and just sit there and listen. So in like a very visceral and real sense, I, I have a lot of empathy for uh, like Anna's position in in uh, in some of these scenes. Um, I don't know. I think some to me, like I don't know. We can talk about you know Anna as a metaphor, how she relates to Ackerman, but I think some people just have a certain je ne sais quoi that like encourages uh, disclosure from others, and it's not really a type of it's not really a dynamic I, I've seen in a lot of other films. It's also interesting. I mean, I think. Um... Yeah, I, th- I think as we're talking, I'm realizing how how much when I watch Chantal Ackerman's movies, I have such as my own very subjective personal relationship, because I think something that struck me in rewatching this is thinking about um, her own kind of, um, especially in the beginning, thinking about she arrives to this hotel room and she's like waiting and there's this sense of both like isolation or alienation and anxiety and um, I've been experiencing a lot of those things in the last few years. <laughs> and, oh, why? Yeah. Like why? Being alone in space. And, <laughs> and, and I think even when she encounters other people, there's still this kind of distance and, um, yeah, it, it's, um, she's present, but it's, I don't know. Yeah, there, there's something that's still the sense of alienation and kind of isolation seems to just keep carrying forward. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's almost like, you know, you were talking, uh, Kate, about how these spaces open up new ways of life. And it sometimes feels to me like uh, like Anna is auditing them, like auditing their ways of life. And like thinking, how do I feel about this? But like not really chiming in, just like kind of evaluating, like Scarlett Johansson in Under the Skin or something. <laughs> well, well, maybe, well, without the last bit, exactly obviously. like that. But but that, that's an interesting comparison, though, right? Because I think it actually gets at something about the film, which is that Anna doesn't feel human in a kind of very specific sort of way. Like she feels very different very much an outsider and some of that is the quality of like estrangement that that does come up i think you kind of see her in the sense of and we maybe want to read it as like she's alienated or she feels sort of disconnected from her surroundings and i think that's very true it's like there's one of the motifs in the film is her constantly looking out the window um which is something that ackerman has talked about being important to her like from her childhood is that some of the anxiety that structured her home meant that she couldn't go out and play with the other children um, out in the street. And so she spent a lot of her childhood looking out the window at other people playing. And so this motif of the sort of like, yeah, disconnection, a kind of um, lack of feeling at home in the world that that maybe has something to do with that sense of looking out. Um, There's that aspect of it. Uh, What else was I going to say? The kind of alien quality here. Um, Yeah. the, The other thing that I think, is present here throughout is the fact that, again, Ackerman is sort of using a whole host of strategies to make it so that Anna 
even as much as we think we want to kind of read what she's thinking or doing, or we want to project a sort of interiority onto the character, Ackerman makes it very difficult, right? I mean, it's like Anna sometimes is talkative, you know, she's talkative to the the people who work at the hotel. Um, she talks to people on the phone. She kind of gives, again, the wrong information at the wrong time. Um, so there's, she is talkative. She does seem to have some kind of like subjectivity that she <laughs> projects outwards. But then again, as you say, Simon, as soon as other people are speaking, she becomes very kind of semi-absorbed, like a little withdrawn. It's not that she's not listening. She's just not doing any of the kind of normal things that we expect people to do when someone else is talking. And Ackerman has this great quote that she um, says about the the German guy sequence. Uh, she says in this interview in 1982, she says, Anna receives Heinrich's words in their difference, in their strangeness. She would appear much more human if she showed some sign of a facing or reducing difference. She could have said, for instance, I understand you, but she thus would have tried to take power over the other. I understand, thus I take you, an attempt to abolish difference. And so, I don't know, for me, this is this like fascinating question of her kind of trying to like think about what it would be to have this relationship between people who are so different, like who don't, like where they're not trying to say to each other immediately, like we are the same, we do have everything in common. It's like, what does it mean to depict actual difference between people, but not so much so that they can't relate to each other I don't know it's that's really interesting too because it's like even even this this idea like oh she could say oh yes I understand and doesn't and so it's like yeah it's also interesting to think about what what's relation without understanding the other person or I don't know yeah that's really curious um but it also kind of in some way it, it does um I mean, I guess that that's a sort of like, you know, fil filmmaker's intention and sort of in this approach. Um, but it also does. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's it's strange to try to translate that into this character and try to, as you say, we, we don't really get some sense of her interiority. I mean, it, it's it's. Um, it's not like totally blank quality, but yeah, uh, it, it like oscillates between them, right? It's like sometimes it feels blank. Some, and then, for example, we haven't talked about this yet, but the sequence with the mother where she meets up with her mother in a train station and they stay at a hotel. Um, I mean, and that sequence is super rich as well, right? Like you have, again, these hints of the, the relationship that Ackerman has with her mother where... Um, at one point, the mother figure says to Anna, um, you know, since you've left, I have no one to talk to. And Anna says, but you never talked to me when I <laughs> lived there, right? Like the idea of there being this kind of odd distance between them. But again, you do actually feel, I personally anyway, find there to be a, a lot of very moving closeness between the two of them. It's, it's maybe the only moment in the film where you have a sense of a kind of like what you might call a, a more human connection um and they, they they end up sharing a bed together um and this is like critics in the past have very much commented on this because it feels like ackerman sort of calling up ideas of like I, you know like the the, re the reversal of the sort of oedipus complex right the idea of the relationship between questions of lesbianism and the attraction to the to the mother's body and these kinds of questions come up very much in the scene as they lie in bed together and the anna character recounts to the mother the story of her having met this woman in Italy and them having kind of fallen into a sexual encounter and what this means. And you get some hints about it that Anna feels very drawn to this and to this woman, but you don't get 
so much detail. Like you don't really know what's mm -hmm. going on specifically, but then they kind of like embrace at the end. And it's such a, I don't know. I find it a really kind of beautiful moment. It's like this film isn't devoid of emotion. Ackerman is just doling it out in a very specific way. That scene is, I remember sitting in the theater and watching that scene. And I think that was the first time I had the germ of like, Kate and I should do a podcast. <laughs> I, I didn't. I don't think I said anything until like six months later. But that was when I first thought, yeah, I think there's something here. <laughs> um, that sequence is amazing. Um, another kind of a, a one of the more like writerly details in that scene, and I, I, it's in my notes, and I may have this wrong. When uh, I almost said Chantal, when Anna <laughs> <laughs> mentions. Uh, mentions this encounter and starts talking about like the concept of of uh, being with women. I think it's around then that the mother asks, "How's Pierre?" <laughs> 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 Which uh, is 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 uh, I think quite a telling little moment. Yeah, it's true. And then that turns out to be like another male lover that she had. But as she puts it, he got tired of waiting for me. He felt like he was always waiting. And um, which is, again, yeah. of course, another the, reference to the nomadism thing. Yeah, the um, I mean, I, I don't want to skip ahead too much, but um, I, I, I really love the the last sequence for how it ex it's kind of like a, a different sort of exhalation than the kind we got um in um in news from home where mm. you finally get the other side of the story of all of these poor people trying to reach this woman <laughs> just having a very hard time yeah i mean the ending is there's a whole bunch of fascinating stuff that happens in the last like 30 minutes of this movie um because this the scene that simon's talking about is uh after anna leaves the last sequence with her lover which we should definitely talk yeah, we'll, about because we'll, we'll it's incredible there, yeah. but she ends up back at her own apartment which again feels pretty anonymous like not very lived in and then she listens to all of the messages on her voice service or whatever and it's this sort of endless litany of people being like anna we were supposed to get together when are you back and and then her her some producer person is like oh you have to here's your schedule for next week you have to be in this city on this day this city on this day and you get the sense of this being a very like a kind of never-ending cycle it's like the time feels very suspended and repetitive at the end of the film there's no like conclusion like no emotional you know development has happened no nothing has been resolved at the end of the film it's um, the, the the vibe of of her like flipping through the messages is, is almost like it, it i don't know it's it, it has a, a, a chore like feeling of almost like someone is sitting in an editing room <laughs> going over uh going over like a rote bit of footage they don't necessarily uh care that much to to deal with yes yeah it's true and then but then there's the interesting question right because the italian woman does show up in the mm. messages right the italian woman and this very beautiful voice is something like dove say you know where are you and again it feels for this second like there's like oh this might be a kind of a space of emotional connection but then it's right back into the kind of like no anna's just going to keep moving on this kind of like journey of of celibacy kind of like a not, like not sexual celibacy but like a lack of commitment to lack of connection yeah lack yeah. or lack of permanence like lack of um mm. yeah building something or as ackerman would put it like possessing something in this more permanent way um yeah it's it is interesting though that ackerman thinks about maybe an enduring connection or enduring relationship as a mode of possession um mm. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because, yeah, when I think about it, it's, yeah, this kind of, um, it's a lifestyle without enduring relationship or enduring intimacy, enduring, you're, you're not building something more. Um, you're not developing that intimacy into something that, mm -hmm. into, into something else. And so, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting to think of that as, as also a way of possessing someone. 
it also makes sense in that framework, like that the only place where she seems to be um, open with her thoughts at all is with her mother. Like the only person she seems to have direct emotional intimacy with the only other people she seems to be able to talk to at length at all are, as Kate said, like functionaries, the people with whom she has no relationship. Mm -hmm. There's like an all or nothing quality. There's lots to say here, man. I mean, I think the idea of like her as a figure without ties to anybody on this kind of perpetual movement. So I, I had never really thought about it so explicitly before, but it very much ties the character of Anna to the character of Julie in Jatul Like they seem quite related, actually, the way our previous guest Aaron was talking about. Yeah, this question of a kind of like asexual like dynamic or like a lack of not asexual, like aromantic and aromantic kind of aesthetics like that. That seems to be very much at play here. Although again, Anna as a character kind of like undoes this subtly too, because she says to Heinrich at one point, like the reason I'm not going to sleep with you is that we don't love each other. So it's like, she still has these ideas, even as she's pushing through them or something. Um, Yeah. Yeah, That that is really interesting though. The idea of like her mother as, as like maybe the enduring connection Mm. or, um, but also, you know, something else I was thinking about, it actually makes sense that she, she kind of, you know, can talk freely with say the person at the hotel desk or something. It's kind of like people who can tell their life story to a stranger, but like have difficulty with the people they see every day. Yeah. Um, that to, to some extent, somehow that makes sense that, you know, if you know these people are going to disappear, there's there's not there's no stakes. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, I, I should be clear that like and as as Kate said, you know, when she's talking to the to the uh, to the hotel clerk, for instance, she's not necessarily disclosing right. anything, uh, anything super uh, anything particularly deep, but she is giving like she's talking a lot about like the specifics of her movements. Although she does at one point, there is a long sequence with her and Heinrich standing in front of a hotel employee who's sort of d- looking, he has the same look on his face that Ackerman does when, uh, that Anna does when other people talk. He's just sort of staring into space yeah. as Anna talks at length about how she would have had children, how she would have had two daughters, right? That she would have named Judith and Rebecca, which is like a reference to her, uh, her Jewish history and that this these were children she would have had but the timing wasn't right so like the idea of talking about two implied abortions in front of a stranger and this man that she's just met Heinrich it's like again this this very extreme sort of mismatch between the personal like revelation and the expected audience that you would have that with normally um I don't know again it's the similar with the mother too right the idea that like there is this implication that she seems to have more of a relationship with the mother but then you also know that like she hasn't seen the mother in three years, three years and when yeah. she le- and when she leaves at the end the next day, she says, "I love you in this very kind of like this very sort of emotionally empty way and then just like walks off. There's no sort of like like the, again, these expressions that we would sort of normally codify as human, right is that Anna yeah, just doesn't do them. It's like the the emotional aperture window like it opens and then in the morning it's gone. yeah like i've I've, I've, I've given you a glimpse and now it's it's closed again. Yeah, and we should talk about the Daniel sequence at the end yes. with that yes, question. But I just, but I wanted to say before we get there because it'll probably cover this in an interesting way. Um, because Jessica's now brought this up twice, and they're both great entrees to this point. I wanted to make about um, Ackerman's uh, engagement with the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas. So you know, Jessica asking this question about like what is you know relationship as possession, and why is Ackerman thinking about these things this way? Unfortunately, I still, despite my efforts so far, I haven't been able to discover when Ackerman did this, but she did study with 
uh, Levinas, who is this sort of very important post-war, I mean, he was writing before the war as well, but he became increasingly important after the war, uh, French Jewish philosopher. Uh, and he was teaching in Paris and she went to his seminars, I think once a week for like two years or off and on for two years, um, which sounded quite fascinating. And I won't try to do too much about sort of what Levinas's whole deal is, but I can try to give some main points because they really color Ackerman's thinking. And I wasn't able to confirm that she was doing this prior to meetings with Anna, but the way the language that she's using here already and the way she's conceptualizing these problems to me strikes me as like exceedingly Levinasian. So I think it may already have been at this point. Um, and yeah, basically, uh, Levinas, let's try to sum up here. He, his sort of whole thing was that he accused many others writing in the kind of Western philosophical tradition of prioritizing ontology as the first philosophy or the first element of philosophy. And which is true. Um, ontology is the question of, is the study of what is, how, how do things exist? How are things in the world? Um, for Levinas, what this does is it prioritizes a Western metaphysical idea of ontology, which has to do with the fact that I, the subject, the way that we engage with the world is by reducing everything to the already known, the already familiar or the same or the self. And so any idea of like alterity or otherness is flattened in this engagement of like reducing it down to a kind of like instrumental reason via ontology, like things exist this way, or I can measure this, or I can say that that's a way of reducing something down to the known. So for him, uh, ethics should be the first philosophy. And this uh, comes up in the idea for him that the main thing that, that philosophers should be studying, the kind of ground of experience is the interpersonal encounter, is the kind of what he calls the face-to-face -face encounter. This is easily confused because I think what people think he means there is like the literal encounter of my face to your face in the world. It's not quite that simple. He was he was sort of against vision. And I'm, I bring this up now because we'll talk about this. I'll talk about this in relation to Dest later. Um, for him, vision was uh, the, the sense that really, again, reduces everything down to the same. If I can see everything in this like rational way, then I, then I feel like I know it. I feel like it reduces down to the same. So for him, language was actually the way that the other and alterity could come through. Um, and then the, the self could be really kind of challenged and opened up by this transcendental other that we're ultimately responsible for because the other makes us possible. And so we can't kill the other. It's very much built out of these ideas of a kind of Jewish theology about thou shall not kill, thou shall not make graven images. Again, this kind of like resistance against vision. Um, and there's more to be said about all of this, and I will come back to it later. But this for me, I think is very much at play in what Ackerman is thinking about these questions of relationship and possession with the other and how to be open to an other who is like radically other, how to meet at an equal level. Um, yeah, because I think Anna is in some ways this as well, just as much as she's like setting up the relationship of, of what that would mean to meet other people in that mode. Um, anyway, sorry, that's a lot. That's my philosophy rambling. Well, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I think what you say actually is really interesting, This especially um, this kind of emphasis on language instead of, say, this face-to-face. -face. Um, and, and it's interesting because it actually makes me think um, it, it maybe could help to make sense of why, you know, there are all these instances where, you know, people are sharing, um, but there isn't the kind of, um, I don't know, affect or expression of emotion that we might expect, I guess. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, it, that people are communicating, but there's maybe less emphasis on the 
how, how I emote to you and how you look back or something. We, uh, we haven't discussed yet the, the penultimate encounter, which I think has some of the most interesting, I guess, ruptures of the dynamic we see in the rest of the movie. Um, wherein this uh, this character who's played by uh, Jean-Pierre Cassel, who you may know as Vincent Cassel's dad or from his many, many, Seriously? Many... That's Vincent Cassel's dad? There you go, Simon. You got me this time. I didn't know that one. Yep. Good job. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting. We, we talk about the lack of sort of connection and intimacy um, that occurs or like, you know, conventional connection and, and intimacy or whatever that occurs in these scenes. And it's, I, th- I think it's so interesting that it takes like some it it takes like physical illness for there to be like some kind of uh some kind of physical interaction we can understand. Well, yeah, I mean, so like what happens in this final sequence? She she meets him, they get in a car together. There's some implication that there's like maybe a kind of sexual moment between them in the car. It's a little unclear. She like it's, leans it, over. Yeah. yeah. So it almost seems like a strange reference to uh, to Jitsuel. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then they arrive at this hotel, which they go to because the the guy says he doesn't want to go back to his apartment. He hates his apartment, which happens more than once. There's like also the mother doesn't want to go home to her house, which is why they go to a hotel. So there's something here again about a dis an unhomeliness, so like a yeah a displacement. So anyway, so they end up at a hotel, and it it feels, if possible, somehow even a little bit more alienating than the other sequences so far. They're in this like kind of modernist hotel room. They sort of look out the window at the um, industrial, or it's Paris, the, the landscape of Paris, um, and yeah, and they go back and forth engaging with each other, and there's some. some he at first seems to be kind of like trying to get her into bed. She is not so interested. He comes down with a kind of like fever and becomes sick. And we can talk about more. There's other parts of this as well, but she does then she wants to kind of sleep with him, but he doesn't want to sleep with her. So there's this sort of strange, like mismatch in the desire in the space. But yeah, I mean, it's incredible. At one point he, he goes on this sort of, again, this like these, another monologue about kind of values breaking down. He, he gives this sort of speech about like his loss of faith in a kind of utopian ideal about, um, I don't know, revolution or change. And he, he's sort of saying he hopes that this comes, but it seems very, yeah, naive or silly. It's like that, that he, at one point he's sort of like, I, I, maybe people could listen to music again. Like, will you sing for me? And he asked Anna to sing for him and she sings an Edith Piaf song, which I don't know. I mean, I want to hear if you guys have thoughts about the song sequence. Cause like, I, I just, I find it always unmoors me, the song. I'm always like surprised by it and I love it. And it seems like it's of such a different register than the rest of the film. Anna smiles while she sings. It just seems like a very different, something is, as Simon says, like rupturing in here, but I'm never sure if I know exactly what is rupturing in. I mean, it seems kind of idyllic at first until you read anything about the song itself. Yeah. (laughs) Which is grim. Yeah. It's about two people committing suicide in a hotel room, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess that's the sort of thing Anna would sing with a smile on her face. (laughs) One thing that stood out to me also watching this after watching Dest is actually the musical moments in that film as well. And thinking about these kind of, um, I I don't quite know what to make of it in this context, or I I think this idea of rupture makes sense, but um, I'll I'll maybe save my thoughts on music. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. We can talk about it more. And I think it comes back throughout Ackerman's career. So we'll have other chances to talk about it. But I think the the musical element in her films to me, or at least where you have characters singing, always seems to me to be a kind of 
move into a space where you have a possibility for a kind of connection or emotional expression that doesn't require verbal expressions of interiority, right? It's like singing is a kind of way to express without it being about like the need to put your thoughts into words as if that is a kind of thing we all could do. Um, I don't know. So there's that. Yeah. I don't know. Simon, did you, did you? Well, it's almost like when he asks her to sing, it's almost like, Oh, this is something I can actually do. Like, Mm, yeah, this is, this is, I can contribute now. Like it's, it's, it's like an escape for her. Yeah, exactly. And I, and to me, it feels like maybe one of the only moments other than the exchange with the mother where it feels like she, yeah, it's hard to say this again. I feel like I'm probably imputing things to the character, but I feel like the film wants you to feel like Anna could feel like she's being invited into the world in a certain kind of sense. Like there's some actual kind of like be the way you want to be. And this is how she wants to be is singing this song. And I, to me, it shades really interestingly into the other thing that I find fascinating about this sequence, which is that she leaves at one point to go get him medication when he has this fever. And you have a very long take of her sitting in the back of a taxi cab. Um, and it's a close up of her face and she cries as the, as you drive through Paris at night. Again, I think this is like one of the er moments in Ackerman's Uber is like that sequence. And I, I have my thoughts about it, but like, I don't know. Am I alone in feeling that affected by that sequence? Does it get anybody else that way? Oh, no, it, 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 it definitely gets me. I don't I don't even know if I have anything smart to say about it, but I do always get emotional at that scene. <laughs> and, that scene and the scene with the mother always get me. Yeah. Do you feel the need to like ask why it is that she's crying or do you just, does that question not present itself or like, what, I don't know. What do you guys think? I feel like I almost never ask why when I watch an Ackerman film. Yeah. yeah. Which is great for a podcast, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I also feel like with this character, as we spend time with her <clears throat> and this kind of distance that is there, maybe remoteness. I, I don't know. And it's almost, it's hard to tell. Like it, you know, as we've talked that, you know, there are these moments where we learn things about her. She shares things, but um there there does some seem to be um i don't know maybe maybe it's even some way that we're being asked to be like her <laughs> to to have some kind of distance or like let her have her experience i guess um like i almost feel like i have an experience that's like okay this is what's happening now and then this is what's happening now and um and I have my own feelings about it, but um, some, somehow there's also this kind of distance. I feel like, yeah, I mean, to me, I think that actually overlaps a lot with how I feel about the sequence. I think for me, and this is why I think it's a kind of like er moment for her cinema, is that it it is a perfect example of Ackerman taking something that she's kind of thematized in the film, which is the relation between these characters, and then really highlighting it as a kind of invitation or a confrontation to that same kind of relationality between the spectator and the character in the film, right? Like the idea that that you're put into this face-to-face, what Ackerman will often call like a frontal or a relationship of frontality to the character, where you're not... Um, Again, you're not given some kind of like sense of interiority, which would be in the Levinasian sense, the idea that you know Anna, you know her interiority, you, you're you projecting yourself into it, you're identifying with her. You're kind of explicitly denied that here. I mean, I don't, it's not clear why Anna's crying in the car. There's no sense of this. And so this question of like, 
being invited into this relationship with a with a fictional character here as you ask yourself sort of how am i supposed to be with this image right like i do i feel emotion without knowing why what does that mean i mean i have more things to say about this and i'll come back to this theme probably throughout the podcast but uh for me i think that's part of why it is such an intense moment is it's not just the emotionality it's like being confronted with emotionality in a very different way than you are in film often yeah when I, I think also in the context of the movie where, and this is so, it touches back to Jutriles so clearly, you know, I think about the trucker sequence where the, the trucker is allowed to just, you know, drone on and on about his life and, you know, the uh, Ackerman there not really, ch not chiming in at all. And here we have the, the whole movie is kind of built on that same dynamic of, of, you know, having this, this witness character around, not, not really for the most part, not chiming in and sort of being, being her own little structuring absence or whatever. Um, and I think that scene is, is, is so striking because um, we finally get, we finally have a moment with just her. Um, not, I mean, we have other moments where it's just her earlier in the film, but I don't know there's, there's something about her in this uh, uh, yet another sort of mobile liminal space of the, the back of a cab to go with, you know, the trains and hotel rooms. And um, I don't know. I think something, something about where it's placed in the film um, I think really, really lands like a gut punch um, just in, in the context of all these encounters where the the only person, the only people who you actually have text to draw from and like contextual information is all these, you know, supporting people who, who float in and out. And maybe also there's something there about the fact that, you know, she's living, this character is presented as living like the nomadic art life, the artist's life. Um, where they 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 make a thing and then they're sort of cast to the winds of fate and they're not necessarily um, in the world in the same way as you know someone who's got a nine to five or is or you know has is is with two children or has to deal with a you know a divorce etc. But even even that is fascinating because I feel like the film actually really does everything it can to go against any kind of idea of like a, particularly a romantic idea of like the creative individual, right? It's like Anna Oh, it's definitely is, not romantic, no. Yeah, it's like Anna, it's like we never see her create anything. The kind of like stories that she tells to people like for example at the beginning when she calls the hotel desk and it's like someone left left their tie here i imagine he's this kind of man maybe it's the man sitting at the counter and it's like it's a story so i guess it's like a filmmaker telling a story but it's so kind of banal and goofy like it's like a really <laughs> like goofy story to be telling um anyway yeah it just makes me laugh but um but yeah the question of like her as a filmmaker is an interesting one i also find it fascinating that ackerman's film doesn't have anything like the character ever writing in it or reading in it. I don't know. I mean, these are sort of like the stock and trade of a filmmaker, right? Or watching films. And these ideas just seem to be, these activities seem to be more or less absent from Ackerman's films with maybe the exception of a little bit of writing in Jatuolel, but that's sort of it. Um, yeah. There's something yeah. kind of funny about like, I don't know. She's, she gets these occasional messages from or calls from her, uh, her, presumably her agent or manager who says, yes, you need to be at this screening here, this screening in Zurich, the screening wherever. And um, uh, the, the, I guess maybe the last thing I'll say is it, uh, this film presents kind of a dismal picture of, um, of the traveling filmmaker, or even just the concept of like going to film festivals. <laughs> yes, it's true. I, I, it I don't know if Ackerman is trying to tell us something about her general opinion of European film culture, but. 
Well, apparently she had to rescue a like traumatized Aurore Clément from a projection booth at the screening of this film. It's like premiere screening at the Paris International Film Festival because the audience was like booing it. And Aurore Clément was like, yeah, so I can see why Ackerman might have a mixed feeling about the life of- What kind of monster boos Aurore Clément? Like seriously. I know. How how can you not love Aurore Clément? I I find her incredible. And maybe we should, we could use this to transition to the next film. This is a great uh, transition to our uh to our next film no no you see you read too fast we have to do sentence after sentence i say the first sentence and then you correct me i don't know why i'm doing this you see the movie will never be done i know i know <coughs> but you never know <laughs> yes you never know but you know it could be done in french it would be so beautiful oh, i would love it yeah but what about the director oh you know how they are First, they speak to you about a part. Then you've got to have thousands of dinners with them. Then they speak about their wife, their children, their parents, their sickness, their plant problems. And then they tell you they've given the part to an 84-year-old man that they've met in a deli. And you're supposed to understand why this is a fabulous idea. Yeah. This is a very, this is, a, again, a total 180 from our, our, uh, our last film. This is a, a 1984 short called... It's 18 minutes long, I believe. It's called uh, Family Business. And this is, uh, Kate, another one that uh, there I don't see it. I haven't seen a ton of scholarship on. But in this case, like it kind of makes sense because it's sort of self-explanatory. In my <laughs> it's, it's true. I can I can give some backstory about the kind of like biographical details that led into the film. But yeah, there, I don't think there's like a ton of scholarship on it. It usually gets like a sentence here yeah. or there in, uh, in writing about Ackerman. But um uh, but yeah, I mean, Simon, had you had you heard about the kind of backstory behind the film already? No, or no? I mean, I, th- there is a it, on the rip that I had. There's a little bit of uh, of, uh, of uh, an introduction from the original airing that I think gives you all the context you really need. <laughs> well, I mean, it's fascinating because, like, I, yeah. So basically, what happens is that after meetings with Anna in like that the next few years, she goes to Los Angeles on a different trip than the one where she films family business later on an earlier trip she goes to los angeles specifically to raise money for the next big project that she wanted to do which is quite a departure from the films that she had made up to that point and this project never came to fruition but it was an adaptation of the kind of grand historical epics two books written by isaac uh bashevis singer um who is a famous uh jewish writer the books were called The Manor and The Estates that were written in the late 60s, and they detail the kind of like movement of, um, I believe, an extended family of Polish Jews from Poland to America, I think, uh, in the latter half of the 19th century. And so, again, these are like grand historical books. They're filled with characters, psychological detail, historical incident, they're period pieces. They're very different than the work Ackerman had done up to this point. She had co-written already, I think, a kind of basic script outlined for them with uh, Eric DeKuyper, who's a figure I've already mentioned here, and he'll come back again later as a co-writer for Ackerman. Um, And they had already acquired the film rights from Singer. And so they traveled to Los Angeles, or she traveled to Los Angeles, to raise $30 million to make this film. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I shouldn't laugh, but that's really funny. Yeah, it didn't go very well, as you might imagine. Ackerman got there and, like pretty quickly realized that she was a complete alien to this industry, like had no relationship to this industry. I mean, people maybe had heard of her, but nobody was going to give a kind of like 
European art cinema director this much money to do something in Hollywood. And more than that, she was actually really surprised by this. More than that, nobody knew who Singer was. Like he's, uh, I believe he's won the Nobel Prize or he's won many prizes. And like, she was shocked that nobody had even really heard of him in Hollywood again. Those of us who study film maybe are less shocked. Than mm, yeah. But uh, anyway, so after the after three months of meetings, I think the producer Alan Ladd uh, Jr., who produced Star Wars, told her maybe don't try to keep doing this. Maybe go make like a little comedy instead. <laughs> and uh, the next uh, decade is basically her transitioning into making comedies and musicals. And uh, and then I believe this trip when she was in back in LA. Los Angeles for where she filmed Family Business. She's kind of transposing the story, but it's when she was writing Golden 80s. Uh, and we see Aurora Clement read a little bit from the script of Golden 80s at one point in this film. But um, but yeah, so Jessica, you hadn't seen this movie before, uh, Family Business. So what was your uh, take on it? What did you think? I fucking love this movie. <laughs> it's so funny. I Holy shit, this movie is hilarious. I think it's also just like... Um, actually kind of I mean thinking about what you all were saying about you know what whether we, we can think about um you know Anna's life as a comment on the life of the artist filmmaker um and I feel like this is kind of an answer which <laughs> 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 feels like yes uh, or you know just this sort of effort that you know in the end really goes nowhere um and yet ha- has a kind of comic quality that I just love. And I don't know. Yeah, I found this both delightful and also um, so- something about it really rings true. <laughs> yeah. To, to me, this is like, I felt, uh, to me, it felt like a straight up return to like the punky or puckish vibe of like a Sodma V, but, yeah. With, yeah. but with like years more experience and, and like polish, but not too much polish. I mean... <laughs> There, this, especially so, like Ackerman's acting is so fucking funny. <laughs> so funny. It's like also how fast she's talking and just like running around the streets and like, but I also, I, yeah, I, I had a similar thought of like this, this also having that kind of quality of Stop My Bee. And um, yeah, I don't know, this kind of um, attitude of um it's almost like slapstick or something mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah there's a screwball yeah. slapstick yeah, aspect they're, they're for sure. like i'm doing this thing you know like um i don't know but that also like gives a kind of lightness to something that otherwise um you know could could be quite crushing or serious. Yeah, I mean, I like, and so for people who haven't seen it, and again, this one is quite available. This one is currently on YouTube. It started circulating a couple of years ago when Le Cinema Club um, found it and made it available. I don't think it was completely unavailable prior to that, but it certainly has become a lot more available since then. So it's easy to watch. Everybody should watch it. And um, yeah, the basic story is that it is Ackerman arriving in America with uh, her producing partner, Marilyn Watelet, Watelet, uh, who she had known since high school. And it's Marilyn's actual son, uh, Leslie, I think is his name. And they all arrive in America. And uh, Ackerman has it in mind from her mother that she's going to call a rich, distant uncle who lives in Los Angeles and get money to produce her next film, which would be Golden 80s in this uh, fictional world, I guess. And um, so, yeah, you have the sequence at first where she's trying to call people on the phone. But again, it's it's very similar to like Anna in the in the other film is that she's sort of calling the wrong people. She's giving too much information to the phone operator. 
purposely her performance is that when she, she talks so quickly that there wouldn't be any space for anybody to respond on the other end of the phone. She's just sort of running through the things she's supposed to say, but it's very funny. She runs everywhere in the frame and Ackerman's got this like little low down run in these high heels that makes me laugh so hard. It's so cute. Like she is just so charming in it. I, again, it's this sort of like very Charlie Chaplin silent film kind of comedian performance. It's so good. And, uh, and then, yeah, she eventually ends up, they try to go to the, house where the uncle is supposed to be but then a friend tells them no it's not this house go to a different house Ackerman leaves Marilyn and her son sitting on the sidewalk while she disappears to this other house and she ends up at somebody's house we later turn it later turns out that this is not the right house but it is has two women in it one is Colleen Camp who is a Hollywood actress who bizarrely I know from the police academy hell yes (laughs) so Colleen Camp is there giving a kind of very over the top like heightened performance as this sort of comic character she's trying to drag Ackerman in and out of the house and she's in love with some man she keeps talking to on the phone and uh, and then Aurore Clement is in the background in the back of the house and Aurore Clement uh, needs a, vo- a voice coach and this is like the kind of main extended comic bit of the film that is like tear-inducing laughter I mean this is incredible <laughs> the voice coach sequence I never cheated on my husband okay I never cheated on my husband I never cheated on my husband never she must have known how funny it is just to watch them interact because their screen presences could not be more different despite their like i don't know kind of uh, similarly uh you know there's there's they're similarly like extremely accented takes on english um i don't know she's got like a foot on her at least (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, Clement's like super statuesque, like this tall, like statuesque kind of Hitchcock blonde and Ackerman is Ackerman. And then they do this whole physical comedy bit where whenever one of them is speaking or the other one is speaking, one sits down and the other stands up in the frame. And like the, the joke is, of course, that um, Aurora Clement wants Ackerman to be her vo- vocal coach, but they both have exceedingly accented English and Ackerman will help her with the words Um, but like half the time she's of course telling her the wrong thing to say, like making it worse. And then the other half, she's sort of helping, but I mean, you know, I, it just is genius. Like Aurora trying to say I cheated on my husband, but saying I shitted on my husband over and over. She's just like, I shitted on my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's just too charming. It is just too charming. And uh, yeah, then Ackerman, I think, goes back and finds her friends sitting on the sidewalk and they go to a hotel and they have to go to New York to chase the uncle down. The uncle's gone to New York and that's where they go is to be continued. Can I just say, like, as much as I love this movie, would you part with 30 million of your 1970s dollars? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if if I was, I mean, I probably wouldn't, but someone really should have. I mean, I just, I do find this a fascinating question. And I think, I think if you kind of dig in the Ackerman archives, maybe there is copies of the, I'm sure you can find copies of what they wrote for this screenplay for the um, singer adaptations, because yeah, it's like a real question. Like, would it have, I mean, presumably it still would have been Ackerman's style, but it's like the, the material is so different than what she normally would work with that it's like a fascinating question it's like was this her kind of saying i will work in a very different mode if you give me all this money or was still the expectation that like yeah it would be like a meetings with anna style film but with yeah. 50 characters it makes me very curious like what is this script that she really thought she was gonna get this money for 
Yeah, I know, right? I mean, and it's also like there's some fascinating context there too, where it's sort of like we're kind of at the tail end of the um, the new American cinema, and the studios are still willing to give large sums of money to like auteurs, kind of modernist filmmakers, people working not in a more traditional vein. Although, of course, looking back at that, it still tended to be predominantly men, white men getting that money and the free, <laughs> like lack of supervision, blank check kind of uh, funding. But um, but I mean, even somebody like Vin Vendors, like Vin Vendors. Uh, Vendors is an interesting comparison to Ackerman because he made that film Kings of the Road, which is like a two and a half hour European art film that Ackerman, I think, went out of her way to differentiate meetings with Anna from. Like meeting, She was like, meetings with Anna is not a kind of like back to your roots, find your identity film. It is the opposite of that. Um, but anyway, sorry. Yeah, but I don't know. Should we transition to talking about Dust? Yeah, um, a movie that is honestly just like family business. <laughs> yeah, they're I- they're identical. Business. That's all we get. <laughs> no, no. no please, do you want to say go? Go ahead. Please say more. Oh my God. Well, that's a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I guess that's it again. Is like, I do think that this conversation is making me realize to what extent I identify with her work as a filmmaker, and maybe also as a new. Um, and like that, that I have this more personal relationship because there is something about um this film that feels very much like um a a filmmaker's joke about her own career and like and also even these aspects of it that even though they're funny also feel pretty um dark like this idea that they don't arrive to the hotel until morning so and there's this man who's like trying to be helpful but actually just doesn't give them a ride doesn't actually like support them to where they're going or like it's just like oh you missed dinner like bye um and who's this uncle who's like you know already gone but knowing she's there and i think also even this idea of like having you know, like, I mean, in this case, her, her, her mother, but like, um, I just think of like, you know, my grandma, like, oh, you should ask so-and-so for money, <laughs> you know, this kind of like fantasy that people are just going to give you like tons of money to do art things. Um, and, in and, and also like, you know, in the beginning, this kind of idea about, um, how, you know, she's going to end up making this exceptional film and it's going to, be wonderful and um and this kind of like motherly fantasy of of how her daughter will succeed and um and then kind of like coping with the reality of what it means to like try to go out in the world and you know get what you need to make something and how strange and um and sometimes uh disappointing that can be but also like I think what also stands out to me is this kind of determination where she's just like okay we're gonna go to New York now and (laughs) and like you know we're, we're just gonna follow this elusive uncle to New York City and like there's no question you know even the kid is like I wanna go <laughs> and so like okay we're going um so there's no question there's this kind of like dedication um but it's also just the absurdity of it. And um, recently one of my friends referred to being an an artist as a mental illness. And (laughs) and she's just like, I just have this mental illness. I just have to do this thing and take care of it. And, And I think like, 
that's kind of what I see in this movie where I'm like, wow, like someone who's so absorbed in this world that like, there's no option to not go to New York. It's just like, go. <laughs> that reminded me, thank you, of, of, of something I, I, I wanted to say, which is that I think another great thing of value of this movie is that I think it captures a bit of Ackerman the hustler. Yeah. You know, the, the, the person who really had to fucking grind to get basically anything made at like almost every stage of her career, it seems like. I mean, we talked before about her habit of skimming profits at the porn theater. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, there's one thing she knows how to do. It's hustle. And um, there is there are times in the in the film where, you know, when the, when she's really leaning into the absurdity of that hustle where um, there's almost like a, like the movie is so absurd and funny that there's that, but also is clearly, you know, Clearly, there is something personal there, and it's almost like uh, I'm not mad; I'm laughing actually, mm -hmm. like at, at yeah. that vibe to some parts of that. Yeah, I mean, she plays she, she portrays herself so interestingly in the film as this kind of like perpetually optimistic, perpetually happy, entirely unself reflective figure who's just sort of like going along for the ride, even as she does as she she is sort of determined that she wants to make this happen and she's driven. But it's very like like when she arrives at the house with um, Aurore Clément, it, it's like she's how to say, I wasn't going to say it, but she's excited to listen to the, to the phone call of the other woman. It's like, she's just, she wants to help her work learn how to do her voice thing. She wants to help everybody. She yeah. wants to kind of like sit and listen to the Colleen Camp as she talks to her boyfriend, which is a hilarious kind of bit because Colleen Camp keeps trying to lean away to talk privately and Ackerman just keeps leaning in closer to listen to the romantic exchange, which Ackerman will come back to much mm -hmm. later in her film. Tomorrow we move. She has the same bit later on, but um but yeah, I mean, she just, she wants to sort of, she's like in the world, she's like absorbing people's stories. She just wants to help everybody. She's this very like, yeah, kind of sprightly, fun figure. And then it, it does sort of clash interestingly with the kind of reality of it, which is her sort of begging to get money to make her art, you know? Yeah, she, yeah. she, she kind of portrays herself like, I don't know, at least this is how I read it. It was as like a like a self parody of a fish out of water, yeah. Like uh, lo like loopy European who doesn't know what's happening and like yeah. doesn't understand Americans. Um, like I mean, there's even there's times in this film where she like portrays like her version of herself as like kind of an airhead. Yeah. Oh, uh, totally. Yes. Which yeah. is like which is like maybe kind of a riff on how she thinks she's perceived in Hollywood. I don't know. Uh, only mm -hmm. she could have spoken to that, but that was sort of how I took it of being like a, like a brash self-parody of other people's perceptions or whatever it jives interestingly with meetings with anna right it's like if, if anna is also a kind of like autobiographical play on ackerman as the filmmaker character it's like these couldn't be two more different takes on like what the filmmaker character Absolutely, of ackerman yeah. is right yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna do an experiment here um for you listeners at home uh, for, for um, so our our next film is in fact Dest uh, from the East, and I think the best way to give you a sense of what this film is like is just to drop in an, a minute of audio from the film, which I'm going to do right here.
that was a clip from Dest, which is uh, once again to pivot hard. Uh, we are moving up here to 1993, and uh, once again a totally different style, but keeping on our theme of displacement. Uh, Kate, do you mind setting up Dest for us? I can, yes. Um, so, in well, uh, first thing I'll say is that this film is often grouped together with uh, a handful of Ackerman's other films, um, Sud, De L'Autre Côté, and Le Bas, as her kind of like documentary quadrilogy. Um, and we could have talked about them that way as four together, but you guys will see later on, we've kind of split the films up for different reasons, but they're often linked together as her kind of documentary films and Dest is considered the sort of first one of those. Um, okay, so that's one way to introduce the film. The other way to introduce the film is that in the late 1980s, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston uh, approached Ackerman about doing a multimedia installation on the coming together of the European community. Um, and this is interesting because at that point, Ackerman was not working in installation art. Uh, she eventually will later come to work in installation art when she remakes Dest. And we're not going to talk about the installation version of Dest here because we'll talk about her installation work much later in the podcast. But um, but yeah, so she was approached on this to make an installation on the coming together of the European community. And Ackerman was interested, but she wanted to focus on, in her words, what was left out of this union of Europe, um, as well as the kind of uh, rise of nationalism and anti-Semitism um, at this period in the like early, it wasn't called the European Union yet, I don't think at that point it had a different name, but um, anyway. Um, and so she was sort of fascinated by what had been left out, what was not there in the coming together of the European community. And she had, uh, I think, just recently come back from, or sorry, then she went on a trip to um, Russia to do some research about the poet Anna Akhmatova, who is, I think, considered one of the sort of major Russian poets uh, of the mid-century. Um, she wrote extensively about her experiences uh, in Stalinist Russia with the Gulag and various things. So that film never came into fruition, but Ackerman returned from that trip, still really wanting to do more in Eastern Europe. And then as the wall fell in 89, and as uh, the Soviet Union ended in 1991, it became clear that, as she put it, the thing we were running out of time, that like this, that this was a form of life. There were many forms of life in the Eastern Bloc that were going to disappear quickly as uh, capitalism comes into the Eastern Bloc. And so she, uh, with the money and the funding from the original producers, pitched this idea of doing, I think, two trips she did in the end. She did two trips in 1992, first to uh, East Germany and Poland to film there, and then to Russia and into Moscow on the second trip. And this is what produced Dest, this idea of it being a kind of we can talk about what this means, but like an experimental ethnography of uh, this particular moment at the end of the Soviet Union in the Eastern Bloc. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's almost easier to describe Dest by, uh, and this is not the only Ackerman film this is true of, uh, by what's not here necessarily, by what is here. Uh, we have no narration. We have no um, obvious added musical soundtrack. Although, what's the story with sound here? Is is it is it once again a? Um, is there also some construction at work? Yeah, it was. It's non sync, so it was recorded live at the time and then remixed in the studio after. Mm. And it's again, it's kind of non realist sound, but it's more subtle maybe than it is in some of the Definitely. other instances. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah no narration. Um, we often move from day to night between sequences. We perhaps move from country to country between sequences. People with more familiarity with the individual places will maybe have a better uh, 
better handle on keeping track of that. Um, I've watched this twice and I still feel like I've barely seen it. Um, this, I have to say, this is the film so far where I most lamented not being able to see it in a theater. Uh, I've never been able to see it in a theater and I would love to. Jessica, did you, Dennis played it in 16 mil at Harvard when we were there and I couldn't go and I was so mad. Did you get to see it? No, I didn't know that this happened. I, I, I would have loved to see it. Uh, big in a theater. I mean, especially because, um, you know, something I was thinking about in rewatching this movie, really wishing I could get more of a sense of some of the facial expressions when there are these, you know, um, uh, I think it's pretty much all the move, the, the shots that move. So the tracking shots and these crowds, um, outdoors, um, where it feels like a lot of people are sort of you know, I mean, at this point, it's it, what year is it? 90, 92 when she's filming. Okay, yeah. So it's like at this point, you know, um, it's it's quite different than, you know, her, her filming news from home um, in terms of people and their relationship to cameras and I think being represented. And I, I just I felt like people were aware in a way that um, also seemed more uncomfortable at times you know it's it's really different these moments when we're outside in the world versus in in these more kind of private interior spaces where clearly there's um you know a kind of permission being given to allow her into this home space there's clarity about you know her setting up in this space um and it seems like the feeling is a little bit different out, out in the world, but I also feel a little bit um, uncertain making claims about it because I feel like I want I want to see better. <laughs> like I, I would love to see it big. I would love to see it on film just to um, also because, you know, in those shots too, like people become these very statuesque, I, I don't know. Yeah, there, there's something um, statuesque, but then also like so many of these shots um, have a kind of grandeur to them that I think would, um, I don't know, yeah, be, be just a totally different experience on the, on the big screen. For me in my DVD copy, <laughs> there's, there's her essay about it. And I thought I would just, maybe I could read just like the first few sentences it's kind of her statement about what she wanted to do. And some of it you've already captured, but I think it's interesting to like hear it in her words. Um, and she said, while there's still time, I would like to make a grand journey across Eastern Europe to Russia, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, the former East Germany, and back to Belgium. I'd like to film there in my own style of documentary bordering on fiction. I'd like to shoot everything, everything that moves me. Bases, streets, cars going by and buses, train stations and planes, rivers and oceans, streams and brooks, trees and forests, fields and factories, and yet more faces, food, interiors, doors, windows, meals being prepared, women and men, young and old, people passing by or at rest, seated or standing, even lying down, days and nights, wind and rain, snow and springtime. Um, you know, and, the, the, and then she goes on, she talks about, you know, um, you know, making the film and why make this film and all of that. But um, I just, that, that's like the clearest statement where she's like, this is, this is what I wanted to do. I mean, it, like, it's a fascinating project because she, 
She's also spoken in various places about the fact that she really didn't want there to be a kind of plan going into it. She didn't want to have a rational, like a logic by which certain images would be chosen or a rationale for like a structure. She wanted to go and sort of just register what was happening and let the images strike her and her team and choose kind of later or let them present themselves as to what was sort of important or relevant. Um, and this becomes interesting later when certain things come out of the film that she didn't realize were there until she was editing the film. And I can loop back to that, but, um, but yeah, so, and she's also spoken about herself as a kind of seismograph that like it, it's, it was less about directing and more about registering, like being present and kind of being this like echo chamber of things that would appear through the film. And, you know, I mean, well, again, just to describe a little bit more what happens in the film. So it's it there's a whole series of kind of tensions that move back and forth. Again, there's no narrative. There's very little information ever given about where we are. Um, even Simon, it's like I kind of knew the countries. I still have a very hard time telling where the countries are. Now, in retrospect, you can tell a little bit that you do move eastern. And so you move eastward. So you move from Germany. Uh, through Poland to Russia. And in retrospect, I think I would you would be able to tell that now if you had that in mind when you watch the film. Um, it also moves from summer to winter. So when you start off in East Germany, it's like people are bathing and there's people playing cards and it's people at the beach. And then it gets colder. There's autumn. People are kind of harvesting. And then you end up in this like never ending Russian winter, which looking outside my window in Montreal is pretty familiar to me. Um, and anyway, so that's one arc of the film. But then the shots that she employs, they, they move back and forth between a kind of set of patterns that, that kind of play off of each other. So you have interiors and exteriors. The interiors are often almost kind of like portraiture modes of people sitting in their own domestic spaces, sometimes looking directly at the camera, sometimes engaged in kind of mundane activities. And again, they go on for a long time. So you're kind of drawn to like registering like detail about the spaces, about how people live. There's those, and then you have the exterior shots that are sometimes just landscapes, um, often tracking shots. Increasingly, as the film goes on, the landscapes are populated by like masses of people um, standing in line for various things. Again, it's often not clear, like you're sort of guessing what's going on. I think some of them are like bread lines or grocery lines. Some of them seem to be related to transport. At certain points, you are obviously in like train stations or bus stations. Uh, but yeah, huge masses of people. So yeah, interior, exterior, um, yeah, movement, stasis. Uh, it feels like people are either in movement or they want to be in movement and they can't be in movement. They're waiting interminably for trains and stuff. The feeling of waiting, like staticness, yes. becomes increasingly yeah. present as you go through the film. Um, but yeah, and then the other, the last tension I was going to mention here is too, is that it, to me, it feels very much like there's a tension in the film between a kind of like ethnographic, like historicity of the photography, the idea that, yeah, that, okay, so ethnography, the idea that like you would use different means to capture some human form of life, some anthropological form of life that's quote unquote disappearing, right? This is what ethnography is. But Ackerman here is very much sort of putting this under question a little bit by making it not a kind of scientific framework. Instead, it's a very subjective framework, right? This idea that she wants to go to these countries, um, not only to see the kind of changes that are happening uh, with the end of the Soviet Union, but also because this is the trajectory that her family made, right? Her parents left Poland and moved to Belgium. And so she feels a personal affinity with these spaces and places and faces. So anyway, so there's that. 
um, part of it, the kind of historicity of feeling like these, this film captures some detail of this particular moment that maybe won't be there later. And, and frankly, isn't there like mm-hmm. this, this film is really a document of a particular moment in time. And we should talk more about like, if we had reactions to that part of it. But then on the other hand, it's not just this kind of like feeling of photographic uh, documentary. On the other hand, it feels very hallucinatory like increasingly it just feels like you're so disoriented you're so lost it has such a kind of like incredible sense of repetition and movement that you just sort of lose yourself in it and it feels very like haunting and ghostly yeah uh, it's incredible yeah the rhythm of the film like as i said i've I've watched this twice and i still feel like uh this is one of the i think the the hardest films to talk about in terms of describing what the act of watching it feels like um but i would say that uh, whether or not this was Ackerman's uh, express intention or a priority of hers, um, I think it's really laudable the way that her her style, I think, is one of the, one of the only I think her approaches is one of the only ones that um, could have enabled a filmmaker to, to, to go to these places and and to capture these times in a way that I don't think it's really it's tough for me to imagine the film um supporting anyone's specific political argument very well <laughs> like it's like and which is really hard to do when you're documenting it like an incredibly politically loaded moment i think it's also um i mean her interest this idea that she's going to capture everything that moves her <laughs> and this really kind of um subjective approach to what she's encountering and Um, Also her acknowledgement and calling it, you know, bordering documentary that borders on fiction. Um, And I really love this phrase bordering on fiction um, that there's a kind of, um, uh, yeah, even just in that an acknowledgement that um, this film and its kind of status as document is um, also kind of, um, complicated, I guess, um, or, or that it also has a relationship to fiction. Um, and you know, it's interesting too, because I found myself really thinking a lot about the interior spaces. Um, I think that's actually what really captured me in this viewing of it. Um, and, and it was actually, this is where I want to come back to some of the music, like that woman who's listening to the record. She's like, record on um but also there's that moment where um people are dancing in this ballroom yeah and um and yeah I, but i but i think you know especially in how she's filming some of these interior spaces to me they're framed a lot like <laughs> um the other two films in a certain way like i actually think there's there's this kind of really strong formal interest that carries throughout. Um, and I even noticed this with um, family business, you know, the hotel and how that's filmed and, and these kind of interests in, in rectangles and lines and all of that. Um, but I think in these interior spaces, it's where um, this kind of um, unique, intimate, sense of there there being particular people and having a relationship to their particular lives um where that feels more palpable to me i think these the the 
particularly the tracking shots of these crowds, those are actually the shots, even though they're the shots that move, they feel the most interminable to me. <laughs> and almost kind of indecipherable in terms of, yeah, this question of um, where, where am I? Is this, uh, am I re returning somewhere? Am I, yeah. But, but then um, some of these still shots that happen in these kind of contained spaces that actually I find kind of hold my attention in a really different way. Um, although I'd also say like, there's that shot of um, pe people in a field and they gradually get closer. Yeah. They're women harvesting uh, potatoes, I think. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and like something like that, watching that unfold, I find totally cap captivating and I feel like I, I get lost in just this kind of gradual motion and also thinking about not just my patience as a viewer, but also her as a filmmaker and the kind of, yeah, interest in just sort of letting, letting things unfold. There's maybe one other um, aspect of, of, uh, of the experience that bears mentioning, which is that there is quite a lot of audible spoken dialogue in various languages, but no subtitles. You know, we see, we have these scenes of, for instance, people waiting in train stations or potentially on bread lines or whatever. And, we have because we don't we can maybe guess at what's happening in the sequence, but we have no sense of like, is this a normal occurrence? Like, is this the is this the eight, the 50th time this has happened for these people or is this the first? Like, how are they feeling about it? we don't we have no we have no idea. Like we're we're being deliberately denied these things. And I, I, I think it's a way like not giving us the information like for even something as basic as just the subtitles for a speech or something. I think it's maybe another way to say, like, uh, you know, this is this is already gone. Like, you can't have this. This is not something that you can access. Well, yeah. Or I mean, and there's many things I want to say here and get into. But the, I think in a certain kind of way, Ackerman is not interested in presenting anything like what certain kinds of documentaries want to give you or want to claim they're giving you, which is a kind of totalizing, transparent, like the belief that you could have a totalizing, transparent picture onto an experience or a moment or a place, right? Ackerman is not offering that here. It's not, this is not a kind of like overview of what the moment is like in Russia. It's like, this is really not like that at all. Again, it's this kind of phenomenological gathering of traces or glimpses. It's, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't purport to give you a certain kind of access. And, and the vocal thing is very much part of that, the kind of denial of the languages. But on the other hand, you can read it a very different way, which is that the fact that she doesn't translate it makes the language in the film not about communication or verbal expression, but makes it about like the uh, sonorous quality of the languages and like hear, hearing the differences in the languages. Apparently, originally, years prior, she had wanted to make a film about kind of Slavic languages in this region and the differences between them because she's always felt like very drawn to them because they feel familiar to her ear because she had grown up speaking Yiddish. And so there's some overlap with the languages, but they're a different structure. And anyway, so she was interested in this, which, by the way, I also think echoes interestingly with the moments in... Um, family business where you have this play on like the language and how language sounds. And she has a really great ear for this stuff, like these language jokes. But um, anyway, so there's that element of it. Uh, I think the other thing I wanted to say here though, too, it's interesting, Jessica picking up on the, the fact of the kind of individual people in their own spaces and sort of what that means, because I've seen, I think Mar uh, Yvonne Margulies talks about this in her writing on the film is 
that maybe what the film, one of the things the film is investigating or dealing with is the kind of imaginary that the West has about the East in this moment. And the idea of kind of like undifferentiated masses of people in communist countries, like the idea of the mass as something that the film is dealing with. And so the fact that it like is moving back and forth explicitly between these poles of the individual face, the specificity of the person next to the mass. And, and I think that's part of it. And then on the other hand, really drawing our attention to like the idea of the mass, because I think you're right, Jessica, like those sequences where the camera is moving for so long across a crowd, it's like mind boggling. You're like, how can this many people be standing in this place together? And I mean, there's that element of it. She also, those um, shots are like, kind of aestheticized in a really gorgeous way because, and I didn't actually know this what was going on until Olivier told me this time watching it, but it's something as simple as the fact that she's affixed a light to the rig that the camera is traveling with. So you get this really kind of odd effect where it's like dusk or it's dark behind the people in line, but their faces are lit in this really like beautiful, subtle way. So they, their, their individual faces really stand out. So you have this tension between the idea of like the specificity of the human face versus the idea of the mass that is continually coming into the image in this crazy way, um, which is like fascinating. I also, you also, and Margulies also points this out, and I think it's smart, is that the film is also really drawing your attention as a Western viewer anyway, it's drawing your attention to the fact of how much in the West our ideas of difference come down to a capitalist visual culture that like people differentiate themselves by wearing logos and wearing very specific kinds of clothing. And like the idea that we're watching this, this, these images of people who are not dressed exactly the same, but there's like much more homogeneity in the way people are dressed and the way people are kind of the way people look in the frame. And so it's this like interesting provocation to just think about, yeah, difference here. The um the the term that the uh the handbook article uses for this camera motion is uh that it's traversing. Yeah. Uh it's a traversal movement, which is to say that it's you know, we we have these uh a lot of these shots are essential I guess they were shot from like a moving car, like a slowly moving car, a lot of them. We're moving lateral like sideways, never we're never probing into we're never going forward. It's it's always the same sideways lateral motion kind and we see people, as you said, as you mentioned, Jessica, often noting the camera more than we saw in, say, News from Home. Um, but that's all that's sort of allowed is just we 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 traverse. Something also, I guess, um, kind of want to follow up on this point that you were making, Kate, about some of the ways maybe this film is kind of challenging certain documentary impulses or expectations. Um, because I also think in a film like this, you know, especially this kind of interest in duration or like letting something unfold, I think um, there's one way of looking at it where a different filmmaker would maybe think of that as kind of um, adding more truth value mm -hmm. Um yeah, that's true. Like the observ observational style yeah, or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And so like in instead of this way of thinking about yeah, kind of durational observational mode, um, it's really interesting that Ackerman thinks of this as fundamentally subjective, you know, what moves her. And um and you know, I think it's also acknowledged in the kind of um intense sort of formalism of of how she's shooting too um but 
this decision not to translate, so not to give us full access as audience, as viewers. Um, and, you know, and then, and then it's kind of this other question about like, what then do we have if it's not, say, access to some knowledge about these places? Um, and Ackerman herself is still kind of, you know, maybe imbued in what we're seeing, but also is, um, you know, it's not like we have voiceover um, narrating for us her relationship to, you know, what we're seeing. It's like, it, it's much more that it's kind of thinking about the camera itself or like the way of seeing embodied in the film um, as subjective. So I feel like she's really asking us to think about images that maybe another filmmaker would think about very differently. Um, but I also, yeah, it's also really interesting to me because um, like on the one hand, I want to connect her to someone like James Benning and, um, and that, that kind of durational, impulse um yeah it's like I'm, I'm trying to think about like other filmmakers who like work in this kind of durational nonfiction realm um when when she was making this and I don't know a lot a lot of them are men <laughs> and yeah that's true um I don't know what to make of it but um I I also just think about how sometimes I feel like this word restraint gets thrown around with films like this, you know, like that are formal and have an emphasis on time and they're unfolding. And, um, and I really actually don't think of her work in that way. Like I think of it as kind of thoughtful and composed, but I, I also think at least if we take her way of understanding it, it's, it's still an expression of subjectivity, but it's like, it's like imbued in the whole experience we're having. Yeah, there's a, I I can't, I couldn't figure out a way to quantify it or slap a narrative on it. But, um, you know, this is, we talked about this in a, in a previous episode, but this is much like every other Ackerman film, a very emotional film. Like it's, you have an emotional response to the images. It wouldn't have our, our individual emotional responses may not be the same, but not only the images, but the, of course, the, the, the montage, the editing, which I would be fascinated to know how the editing process for this worked. Yeah, I don't have any. Um, I don't have anything in my back pocket about specifically how they edited it, but I. But we should bring up now these other ideas about the film that have been talked about a lot, which is that Ackerman, she has many times said in interviews that she didn't see these aspects of the film until it was being compiled into into its through the editing process into its final form, um, and these ideas have to do with the fact that as she was watching them and she was saying to herself, like, I didn't know why I was drawn to certain images while we were making the film or I didn't know why I was drawn to shoot something and not something else. And then she says, as she was watching the film, it became clear to her. And I think this is very much in the film is that particularly, I think as you get into the latter half of the film, that there are these fascinating and upsetting echoes that come through in the image as you watch, you know, hundreds of like thousands of people in some instances waiting interminably with luggage with bags being moved around displaced in these particular 
spaces in Europe, right? And and of course, so then really what starts to emerge from that is the fact of there being a kind of historical echo behind these compositions in the frame, whether the historical echo is, you know, the gulag is the kind of like Stalinist purges um, and deportations, or whether it's the Holocaust and the Shoah. And this is, so this is sort of something that has been really played up in the film later on when Ackerman turned it into a installation, she draws out the link with uh, the show more explicitly. And we can come back to that at a future time. But um, but this is, I think, an important aspect of the film is that later in these later sequences in the film. Yeah, it's a, it's a really kind of unnerving, strange experience that the film is sort of forcing you into this space of, as you said, Simon, like you're not sure why these people are in these places. You don't know where they're going. You don't know what is happening. And it's like Ackerman, even without her thinking about it while she was making the film, opening up what she would call an inscribed image. So this image that she she herself at least feels she carries around with her, but then maybe she would go as far as to argue is like sort of carried around more broadly in the post-war period. And she just finds it like unconsciously or she finds it through this process while making the film. Um, and then the question is like, do you see it while watching the film, right? And um, I have more things to say about this idea of like what's not in the image, but um, but yeah, did have this idea occurred to you guys while you were watching the film? <laughs> Jesse Maybe not. Just at me. Uh, no, I hadn't gotten there. I will Interesting. confess. Jessica, do you come across that stuff before? I mean, I guess as I said earlier, I think I always think about the Holocaust when I think about George Ackerman. So <laughs> I feel like in some way, but um, maybe not so directly. So, I mean, now that you say it, I'm like, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, obvious. Yeah. That's, I have to say, like, yeah, of course, I really should have yeah. picked up on that. Um, and so I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's like, I think she's a filmmaker where I kind of think it's just always there in some way. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is. And it's fascinating too, because like for me, watching these films together, it really echoes backwards into meetings with Anna, actually. And we didn't talk about this so much when we were talking about it earlier, but you have long sequences of meetings with Anna that aren't about the monologues. It's about Anna on a train many people with luggage, people moving, you know, again, this idea of displacement, but like there's one long sequence where she's on the train in Paris, or uh, I think it's in Belgium actually, and looking out the window and you see just sort of like landscape going by, train stations going by, landscape going by, train stations going by. And for me, I had this like really striking moment where this idea that I've often heard talked about in relation to Ackerman's films really hit me, which is um, what people have talked about through this term, the dialectical image, which is a term that comes from Walter Benjamin's work. Uh, and I should specifically credit, I'm taking this from Marianne Schmid, who is a friend, uh, author of kind of French studies. She's written actually a really solid book about Ackerman. So if people are looking for a short introduction to Ackerman, Marianne Schmid's book is good. Um, but yeah, she's kind of talked about this idea of the dialectical image in relation to Ackerman's work. And it basically has to do with what I was talking about before, which is the idea of an image that doesn't explicitly represent something. It's not like, you know, Schindler's List. It's not like characters telling you that we're in a concentration camp in the Holocaust as if history could be represented to you in this way. It's explicitly not that. It's a, it's a different kind of image. And um, in this idea, it's like the truth of the image, as Benjamin were put it, the truth of the image lies explicitly in the fact that the image itself is able to call up history for you without re without representing it, without making it, trying to make it present for you again. Um, and I think there's a moment in Anna when I was watching these train stations go by where it hit me with this really strong force. I was like, I've been to these places, I've been on these trains, and these were the physical spaces where 
people were deported to concentration camps. Like this is like you you stood in these places. It's just like it hits you in this really intense way that I think is quite different than what you get in a film that purports to be giving you some access to this moment in a very different kind of way. And anyway, so that's a lot to say, but I think she's very much interested in that, in Dest, this idea of, and, and it links back as well to the the concern with Levinas. And by the time you get to the 90s, Ackerman is 100% having read Levinas. So it's very clear at this point that like, she's very um, trepidatious about images that show too directly what is happening in the image because again that would be the idea that you would learn it you would know it through vision you would gain it immediately it would be familiar and easily understood and that's explicitly what Ackerman doesn't want to do she wants to give you this sort of more circuitous more thoughtful relationship to whatever it is that's being presented um and the last thing I'll say here is that again this also links up to another idea that Ackerman talks about explicitly in the interview with Godard where Godard is pressing her uh about her like process like how she what she does when she makes films and she talks about writing that she always starts with writing she writes first and guitar keeps like needling her about this and he's like but wouldn't it be better to start with the image like you're a filmmaker why not start with the image that's what i do i'm Godard. i start with the image <laughs> like ackerman to her complete credit like totally holds her own throughout this and it and it produces interesting points because she increasingly says like I, I am starting with an image in a certain kind of way, but it's it's this inscribed image. It's these images that I'm carrying around with me that I want to undo and then maybe new images that I want to inscribe in the film. So that is there. But she wants to start with writing because of the what she what she refers to in this is its name uh as the the builder of robot the the jewish ban on graven images the this is the second commandment in the bible right the idea of thou shall not make an idol um and so she says as a filmmaker i'm transgressing jewish law i'm i'm putting things into images so for her the question is how to make an image that doesn't purport to show it's an image that it's like a writerly image it's an image that makes you aware of what it's not showing anyway that's a lot of stuff <laughs> damn my only thought on um, what you were saying just then is that I think that I think that sort of helps explain something about Ackerman's like overall style and approach just in, in general that um, I admire so much. And I think is maybe what made me want to do this in the first place is just her ability to to remove the easy readings, but in a way that never like I never feel like her films are being, um, you know, abstruse or difficult or fussy about their style in a way that is attempting to, you know, um, underline a, an obvious, to, to score an obvious point um, against some other style or against some other political current or social current or aesthetic current. Like it, I never feel like, you know, she's, she's uh, beefing with other filmmakers, although perhaps she was secretly beefing with Jean-Luc Godard the entire time. <laughs> well, she loves Godard too. And she says that in the interview. So yeah. I should be careful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course. And I, I know that uh, I know Pierre Lefou was, uh, was like yeah. a formative, uh, formative influence and all that, but still. I also, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm thinking about this idea about how images can become imbued with, um, these both personal and historical meetings in a way that isn't, say, directly representational. And it almost sounds like it was even maybe unconscious. Oh, I think so, yeah. That came out in editing. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, I, I feel like, um, I think maybe, I don't know, it's been years since I've read this book so i'm thinking of shadows specters shards the jeff D jeffrey scholar book about um 
experimental cinema and um, using these different concepts of the shadow, the specter, the shard um, to think about history. Um, but also um, because, yeah, I think he, he's also someone who's written about certain Jewish filmmakers who are the children of um, Holocaust survivors. And um, yeah, but it, it, it is this kind of, uh, or it seems like this, this kind of thing that haunts you, um, that, that even if you um, weren't there, um, that still um, sets up certain um, images in your mind and, and um, it impacts you in this kind of other generational way or the way the generational trauma works. No, I mean, I think so. And I think it's, <clears throat> it is fascinating. I think this is another point that, that Schmid makes, which I thought was quite smart, which is that it, it differentiates Dest from another film, which you could compare it to here, which is Claude Lanzmann's Shoah, which I don't, I don't know if you guys have, have seen Shoah. I've, I've not seen the whole thing, but um, it's of course the kind of like landmark film in discussions around representing the Shoah and representing the Holocaust on film and Famously, it doesn't it doesn't purport to kind of, again, do any kind of representational work or like give you some window into what it was like then. Instead, it is Landsman and his team visiting the contemporary sites of like kind of historical traces of concentration camps, train lines, um, cities, etc. Interviewing people in the contemporary moment, telling stories about that period. Um, and I mean, it, it enters onto this kind of debate around like, what it means to say that the Holocaust can't be represented, which is fraught because on the one hand, there's the idea that, that, um, that Landsman ascribes to, which is the notion that, and, and maybe Ackerman as well in a certain kind of sense is that uh, a historical tragedy of this scale. Um, and there are many other tragedies of that scale that we might mention, including things like the slave trade and colonialism on mass, all of these things that they would be, that, that it would be doing them a fundamental injustice to claim that they could be reduced down and put in a film that purports to tell somebody what it was quote like to experience that thing. And so there is reticence to do that. And Landsman's film tries to do a very different approach to these questions, but then on the other hand, people have critiqued someone like Landsman's work by saying that it kind of um, fetishizes an idea of the impossibility of communicating about something like this kind of tragedy and that it actually is not that different than the Nazis project because the Nazis project was to erase the Holocaust, right? It was to not only commit a genocide, but to leave no trace of the genocide itself. And so this, anyway, these are all interesting questions that I think will continue to be relevant for Ackerman's films as we go on. But the idea that Ackerman produced a film that enters into this debate without consciously sitting down to choose a side about it is fascinating. I mean, it like, yeah, that it, it kind of ends up revealing something about how these images do shape the way that that people think and people live and maybe particularly people who grew up in the, in this kind of post-war moment with parents whose families died in the Holocaust. I mean, these are, yeah, important questions. It makes me think of Agamben's remnants of Auschwitz and this question of testimony that's like at its center. Um, and yeah, it really is about this question of like, how, how do you represent something that kind of destroys representation and, also, then simultaneously, this kind of uh, double-edged sword around um, representation—that that if if 
if there's nothing, then it disappears and... Maybe Jessica, maybe that actually, what you just said there, maybe that actually gets to what Ackerman's project is here, which is that it doesn't disappear, right? Like even if there is nothing, it doesn't disappear. The image itself lingers. It just needs this kind of like sensitive response to draw it out of the way that that we live. And and again, we should be careful not to say too, that like I don't want to um, sidestep the question of like, particularly Eastern European histories that are not the Holocaust, but are also kind of like Stalinist Russia. I mean, it's like there, there are multiple histories of kind of tragic atrocities here that, that can be drawn out of this film. Absolutely. Um, and I should say too, there are, there are like particular moments in the film that maybe kind of bring this up, right? It's just like the tension of people waiting interminably for something that seems to always be about to happen, but we don't know what it is. Um, I don't know. Yeah, there's these sequences where you, where people's heads are cut off in the frame a lot of the time or kind of bodies lying in stairwells. And I don't know, th- those sequences to me just become increasingly fraught when you return to them. Yeah. I also like that there's still there's still room for a couple of little ruptures um, that just that that note the camera and the movement in a special way. I'm thinking of like there's a shot where I th- I think it's in it could be in one of the train station sequences where um, Ackerman's camera is moving so slowly that it looks like a I, this guy who looks I guess he's a soldier. It looks like a hmm. looks like an ex palace guard or something. He's re- he's real he's he's got a lot happening visually and. Um, <laughs> He the the camera's moving so slowly that he has time to like notice the camera and like um and do a do a do a bit like you know like you know smile at the camera look around interact with his buddy or whatever but it's again still moving so slowly that like he does his thing and then he's still in frame and he's not doesn't really have a plan for like another thing to do um so he just keep, i don't know there's like a, there's a little bit of a, a funny a funny note there there's not a lot of humor in the film but there's like, <laughs> there are these little ruptures like almost it it, it all kind of made me think about um about sylvia plath's mother reaching out mm. in letters home like a, a little bit of uh a, a a little bit of of human contact just kind of like peering through for a moment I mean, it's funny. It's funny you say that, Simon, because to me, it's like it's a weird mix in this film. Because there, I think there are moments by the time you get to the latter half where it it does feel much weightier and heavier. But I also find, like in the first two thirds of the film, that it feels like a very how to say it like loving isn't the right way to say it. It it feels like a very affectionate portrait of this period in this moment it's like you have you see sort of a lot of people engaged in very kind of lighthearted activities like they're playing cards or they're at the beach or they're listening to music or they're making dinner it's like it, it doesn't feel heavy in those early moments and then there's many many sequences of um cities at night where there are hundreds of people walking around like yeah enjoying themselves often. Like, it seems like it's like couples out for the night or people are coming or going. And I'm like, man, and maybe this is just me me speaking from the pandemic, but it's like, I just look at this and I'm like, this looks fun. Exactly. Like there's something to this kind of like this, this particular public life that the film captures. There's like a cello performance late in the film too, where people continue to give the cellist uh, like epic amounts of flowers at the end. There's something about the idea of a public in this film that is important, I think. Yeah, it's definitely not like, I feel like we may have made it all sound like doom and gloom, but it definitely yeah. isn't. No, it's not. It's, well, um, it also definitely th- changes with the seasons, I feel like. Yes. Yeah. Like the mood, it's like some real like sad coming on. Like 
Yeah. It's like the winter has arrived. The darkness is here. Like, I'm sure I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, none of us do. Yeah. And it's like the beginning, it's like summer and like it's bright out and there's like, you know, the windows are open and like the yeah. wind is blowing the curtains as this woman sits in her living room and the sun is shining <laughs> in. And then it's like by the end, even in these interiors, they're all like lit by artificial light and like, you know, it still feels like it's midnight or something. And um, yeah, it has a real kind of seasonal emotional shift. Um, yes, it definitely does. And also, I will I will completely agree with you, Simon, though, that it really feels like a movie that that kind of escapes you. Like I watched it, I've seen I had seen it before. And then I watched it again. And I found myself this week more than usual wishing I'd had time to watch it twice before yeah. the podcast. Like it really... I don't know. I just, I feel like it is such an, a, a rich film. I just want to keep going back to it and seeing it again next time in a theater, hopefully. <laughs> oh my God. A theater viewing would be oh. magical. Yeah. It also, and I, we haven't said this yet, but the film did have a really like uniformly pretty positive reception when it was um, released. I mean, by, by the late, by the early nineties, Ackerman's critical reputation has been a bit more cemented, but um, I think as I implied in some earlier episode, like this is kind of considered I think an important critical high point for her, the the work that comes after the seventies work dust is like a real beloved critical object. I think it was, um, I think art forum sort of like included it in its best of the nineties list and like just critics really, I think critics really got it at the time, which is just nice compared to, yeah. compared to a lot of the other critical reactions that we'll see to Ackerman's films. It's nice that like this moment, it really just hits and people understood what the film was doing and really loved it. Despite the fact that it's a challenging film, you know? Yeah. Um, I have a quote, from Jay Hoberman writing in The Village Voice. Um, comparable in force and originality to Godard and Fassbender, yeah. Chantal Ackerman is arguably the most important European director of her generation. I actually, now that I read this, I don't know that that was for this film, but it is in this booklet for the film. So, um, I know that it was in the obituary that New York Times ran for her, but I can't remember if Hoberman wrote it at that time or if he'd written that earlier. I think he'd written it earlier. But yeah, I mean, that's a great quote. It is. It's like, take that guitar. And with that, maybe it's time to uh, to wrap things up. Yeah. Any any final thoughts on any of these films before we before we go? Oh, I think I probably will have more, but we'll have time to talk about them later. Yeah, we've... We... <laughs> <laughs> we've up, dear listener we've taken up enough of your time today uh jessica do you have anything to plug or uh any any place people can find you online if you wish yeah to any new any new films that are making the rounds i have or, a new yeah. film coming out soon this spring uh more Yay. more info tbd um you can follow me on the insta um <laughs> uh it's my full name underscore and so Jessica Bardsley underscore. I've got a website. I've got a Vimeo page. Pretty Googleable. Um, Yay! <laughs> and um, yeah, excited to have a new film coming out into this very weird world. New, yeah. new, strange times we've got ourselves in now. Um, and I think that's that's all I got. But I really loved, um, you know, yeah, I loved rewatching these movies and discovering family business for the first time. Um, and it was actually really interesting to watch, like such 
I think at first where I felt like, wow, these are very different movies. But I think by the end, I was like, the, the, the way of filming spaces and architecture and this like formalist approach that's very, I don't know, um, painterly sometimes, you know, like the, this, it really persists in, in, in across her work. Um, so yeah, I was, I was glad to be on this ride. Yay. Well, we're glad you could join us. It was awesome. Fun. This was, a, I mean, I feel like this was maybe one of our heavier discussions. I knew the kind of like Shoah, Love and Us stuff was coming with Ackerman. So listeners, thank you for <laughs> us, humoring yeah. me and bearing with us in the more difficult stuff here. But, um, but yeah, I mean, these films are incredible. I really do. I hope everybody gets to watch them. They're, they are much easier to find. Um, unfortunately, neither exist in particularly great copies. I think Dust has been restored recently, but I don't think that copy is like available in the world yet. I was a little shocked to discover that Meetings with Anna still hasn't been restored. It's like Criterion has put it out, but it's a really old transfer. It doesn't mm. look particularly great. Where are the new copies of these movies? They are gorgeous <laughs> films. They deserve restoration. But anyway. Yeah. Um, what just just so people at home can have a chance to perhaps pre catch up. What are we doing next month? Oh my God, Simon! What are we doing next month? I'm gonna have to open my. Oh, table. I think we're doing comedies next month. Uh yes. No, that's not right. You have missed no. something here in this my thing, bad. and I and I missed telling you that it was yeah, wrong. Never mind. So. It sounds like we have some homework to do. Uh, but listeners, uh, thank you for joining us, Jessica. Thank Wait, you so no, we're doing. I can do it. We're doing. Oh, you tuch, got it? We're we're doing Tuchinui and Night and Day uh, next time, and maybe some shorts. But um, oh, I yeah, forgot about that one. Yeah, yeah. Night and Day is definitely not one of her better known films. Tuchinui is. Um, I haven't seen Night and Day in years. Tuchinui is incredible, or All Night Long. It's sometimes called in English, um, and it'll be interesting going back to Night and Day to see how that one strikes me now. So I hope people can watch those in advance. Yes, and uh, once again, special guest there for that. Very excited. Uh, yes, definitely. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, listeners. And uh, thank you again. We'll be back. Yay. I just agree with everything you said. It sounded, it sounded, everything you said sounded great. <laughs> Thanks. Welcome to my life. Uh, I'm like, I'm not going to say anything after that. But yeah, fair enough. What could um, I possibly have to say after that? I don't know. I'm like, why am I here? <laughs>